So with this podcast, with Alex, with Ohio Be the World, you discover Ohio's history. But with us on In the Record Store, you can discover Ohio's music. Discover better music on In the Record Store. I'm Vince. I host the show along with my buddy Grant. And there is a ton of music to discover. Ohio, I would say it is a musical state. Columbus is a musical city. So let's talk about it. Get to know their history like Alex does, but also get to know their music as well. It's in the record store wherever you download podcasts. Listen today. And now, here's Alex and Ohio Be the World. Thanks, Vince. Those are our boys, Vince and Grant, over at In the Record Store podcast, partnering with them for part of this season. Uh, they do an awesome music show uh, every other every week, so go check them out, uh, intherecordstore.com. They've got a magazine that comes out quarterly here in Columbus, and they cover the Columbus and Ohio music scene better than anybody else. So go check them out. Today, we are talking episode four. It's Ohio versus Murder 2.0. <laughs> We're going to be looking into the murder of Christy Mullins, a 14-year-old from the Clintonville area here in Columbus, Ohio. And just like our previous Ohio vs. Murder episode, this will be a two-part episode. This is part one. Christy was killed behind, in the woods behind Graceland Shopping Center in August of 1975. We'll talk to an author, John Oller, author, historian, New York City attorney, John Oller, who wrote a book in 2014 about the murder of Christy Mullins called All American Murder. It's an ebook. You can download it, read it right on your computer or your phone. It's only 60, 70 pages long. But we'll talk to John. We'll also talk to Mary Mendicino, went to uh, high school in Whetstone, where Christy would have been going, middle school, all that kind of stuff, uh, and was friends with and knew every, a lot of the people involved in the case. We'll sit down with John, and we'll talk about how John Oller's book, All-American Murder, ultimately cracked this case. Forty years almost after the murder, this cold case was solved, and the murder of Christy Mullins was found. We'll talk about that journey. We'll talk about all the suspects. We'll talk about all the clues, all that stuff all you true crime fans love. I was just in Graceland a Shopping Center on the north side of Columbus. It was basically the main shopping district back in the 70s before we had all these mega malls, you went to Graceland, bowling alley, movie theater, and the Woolco General Store, you know, kind of like a Walmart, uh, that Christie's body was found behind in, in 1975. I was there eating dinner at a place called Pat and Gracie's, really cool restaurant. They just opened one downtown. Um, but if you're looking for a good meal, go check them out at Pat and Gracie's. Awesome, good friends, good people. But this murder was the type of murder that everyone knew about. Our guest today, John Oller, calls it like the Sam Shepard murder was in Columbus. That kind of crime of the century type of deal. People, our parents' generation, they know about the Christy Mullins murder. But what they might not know is that it was solved. With the help of our guest, 40 years later, that cold case was finally solved. If you go back, you want to listen to our previous Ohio vs. Murder episode, was about Sam Shepard, the fugitive, those the murder of his wife in Cleveland back in the 1950s. Go check that episode out. It's also a two-parter, just like today. Before we get started, though, we just cracked open our first beverage of the evening, and it's a North High IPA. Graceland Shopping Center is on North High Street. 
We're going to be drinking the North High IPA. Go to NorthHighBrewing.com. It is a Columbus beer. Their IPA, it's almost like a kind of like an orange or a peach kind of smell and taste to it, but it's a really bold, really good IPA. Just had one with uh, Mrs. Ohio V the World at, at the Blue Jackets game a couple weeks back. Uh, very good stuff. You can go see them. They're on North High and 6th Street, so kind of in between Short North or 6th Avenue, in between the Short North and Campus. Uh, very cool tap room. They do tours. Again, NorthHighBrewing.com. Check out their IPA. You can get it all over town here. Uh, but we're going to be going to North High Street, in the woods behind North High Street, for today's show, Ohio versus Murder 2.0. Real quick, just a couple of things we've been up to. Um, we are doing shows, like we said, every other Monday, uh, which means we'll drop a show probably as a Christmas present on Christmas Eve, or Christmas is actually a Monday this year. Um, so look for that. That'll be episode five. And also, we've got shirts. If you're looking to buy shirts for people for Christmas, uh, email me, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. I can get those and ship those out to you and have them out to you before, before the holidays. Um, again, look at our website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com, uh, to look at those shirts or our Instagram. We've got them up there. Really cool, really comfortable, um, and they're selling really well. So we appreciate they are $20, uh, free shipping, all that stuff. So just let me know. Um, lastly, you can check us out. We did a little speech this week for the uh, Columbus Rotary, the Short North Rotary, um, about Warren G. Harding, about whether or not he was a former Rotary member from Marion, Ohio, the 29th president. But we talk about his career and his rise and his presidency. Uh, just a little presentation. You can check it out on Facebook at Short North Rotary. Uh, on Facebook, they've got that posted. I didn't really know they were filming it, but they did. It's really cool. Um, if you want me to hear me argue about whether... Uh, Warren G. Harding was the worst president, or was he not? Often rated very low. I argue he's about, I don't know, the 10th worst, 12th worst president. You can check that out. Also, 614 Magazine, we helped write a comic. They did kind of a hidden Columbus history feature in, in this uh, month's issue, the December 2017 issue. Uh, and we helped write a comic uh, about Tommy Thompson, the subject of last season's episode 13, Ohio versus Gold, the treasure hunter. His whole story, uh, Ryan Caskey was the uh, was the artist on that. He did an amazing job. And again, we, we wrote the storyboards and all that for that. So you can go check that out. Grab a 614 magazine uh, and check out our Tommy Thompson comic that we wrote. It's really cool. But enough about us. Let's get into today's episode, Ohio versus Murder. We're going to talk about the murder of 14-year-old Christy Mullins in the summer of 1975. And we will ask, who did kill Christy? Because it's episode four, Ohio versus Murder, 2.0. In this case, I think you start with the sheer br brutality of the murder. It was unusually um, brutal. New book out in recent media attention. Police have decided to take another look at this case. There is one person that knows all the answers. Uh, confession was concerned because the confession was the case for the state of Ohio in reality. You know he did it, don't you? The gruesome murder of Christy Mullins took place on August 23, 1975, a week or so before Christy, five days before her 15th birthday, 
was to be a sophomore at Whetstone High School in North Columbus. Christy that day was, was swimming at the pool. It was a Saturday, 93 degrees. Everyone I talked to talks about how hot it was that day. She left the pool to go to Graceland Shopping Center with a friend of hers, kind of a friend, a girl named Lisa Sprague. That's what we'll call her in the show. That's not her real name. Kind of protecting her identity. She was a minor at the time. A classmate of Christie's. And we talk about you know where this took place behind sh- the the Woolco store. Woolco was kind of like a like a Walmart type of place. Um, and they went. They supposedly went to Graceland. And Lisa got lost. Lisa lost Christy when she came back out of the store. Christy was gone. This murder rocked Clintonville. Still a very tight knit area here today, just north of campus. Um, but we talked to John Oller, our guest, the author of All American Murder, the author who who really delved into this and ends up cracking this case. We talked to him just about the murder of Christy Mullins. Her body's found shortly after 2 p.m., beaten to death, bloodied in the woods behind Graceland Shopping Center. Uh, well, she um, uh, was basically a, a teenager hanging out that day. She went to the pool. Uh, she went to a friend's house. Um, she was last seen, according to the friend that, uh, that testified in the later trial, uh, last seen at uh, Woco or at uh, Guardrail, right uh, near uh, Woco. Um, how she got to the woods, I don't, no one really knows um, um, because there's no witness to it. Uh, the only thing I, I'm pretty sure of is that she went, whoever she went with, however she went, uh, she went voluntarily. She was not dragged through the woods, which was the original story of the, of the police. Um, uh, it, it's, it would not be, and I've been there, it would not be physically possible for any person to drag a girl of her, her size and strength um, unwillingly yeah. unwillingly through the woods. For, for, for no other reason, she'd be all scratched up on her feet. She was barefoot, and there were no scratches on her feet. So she went there willingly, probably with her killer, uh, maybe with somebody else in addition. Um, you know, w- w- whether she was tricked or set up, as some people think, uh, we don't know. There are various theories that have been propounded, and maybe we can just discuss some of those later. But uh, yeah. the basic reason it was we don't know how and why she got to the woods that day. When was she found, uh, you know, and kind of what were the circumstances of, of her and the murder scene? Yeah, she was found um, uh, around 2.15, 2.20 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, August 23, back uh, in an out, in a kind of a remote section of the woods off the beaten path behind Wolko. Uh, she was uh, physically... Uh, beaten very severely in the head and face. Uh, she was found um, lying in that spot in the woods. Her top was, uh, whether it was a bathing suit top or a bra, was pulled down to her waist. 
she had jeans on, long jeans over her bathing suit, and uh, the zipper on her jeans was pulled down, was unzipped, but otherwise the jeans were intact. She was barefoot, and there was a telephone, plastic telephone cord wrapped around her, I believe, right wrist. Um, nearby, there was a board that was found uh, and determined to be the murder weapon that she was uh, hit with um, uh, a number of times. The community is terrified. The murder of this innocent 14-year-old girl. It's the top story all over. Christy was said to have been with a friend like we talked about, Lisa Sprague, again, not her real name, a friend and classmate who went with her to, to the Graceland Shopping Center. We asked John you know, about, about who is Lisa, what was Lisa's story. She's really just the final person to see Christy alive besides the murderer. Well, Lisa Sprague, and that's a pseudonym for the, that's not her real name, um, but she was a, a friend of uh, Christy, or at least an acquaintance who had spent time with her that summer. And um, I'll just tell you, her testimony, which she's re- repeated many times over the years, is that um, she and Christy left the, uh, the pool uh, in the morning and went to a friend's house, and then uh, Lisa left the friend's house because her sister found her and said there was this man calling again, and he was going to call again at like 1 o'clock. And so Lisa went to her house, took this phone call from a man who um, identified himself as a disc jockey for a local radio station, which she couldn't remember uh, the call letters of at the time. Um, but uh, he had a what she called a hillbilly accent, Appalachian accent, and was somewhat stuttering and nervous. Uh, again, according to her account, he told her that um, that there was going to be a cheerleading contest uh, mm-hmm. behind Wolco at um, 1.45 that day and that she should go there and maybe take a friend um, and uh, to be there by, and it's not clear whether he said 1.30 or be there at 1.45, somewhere in that time frame, and to take the shortcut path through the woods if she knew where that was, which she did, which every kid in that neighborhood knew at that time. So she said that she um, started toward Wilco uh, with her younger sister, that she met Christy Mullins along the way, at which point she sent her younger sister home and went to Wilco with Christy. Uh, They got to Wilco, and according to Lisa, Christy sat on the guardrail right next to Wilco um, while Lisa went inside to check on the time because they got there at the appointed or near the appointed hour for the cheerleading contest. Didn't seem to be anything going on. Didn't seem to be any cheerleading contest in, in sight. So she said she went inside to check on the time. This was around 1.40 p.m. Um, came back and Christy was gone. And except that the shoes, the saddle shoes that Lisa had left with Christy, um, which she left with her, she said, because she didn't want to be accused of shoplifting them inside Wilco, the shoes were still there. 
um, but Christy was not. Mm-hmm. So she waited a couple minutes there at the guardrail and then decided to go back home through the path uh, and sat on a rock in the in the middle of the woods again waiting for Christy and was quite mad at Christy at this time for leaving her. This is all again her story and um, only later that day did she hear that uh, a girl had been murdered in the woods and so she pretty much knew that had to have been Christy. Those woods behind the mall they're used by kids um People, you, know, you could ride your bike back there. People ride their motorbikes. But it was a safe place, a place for hiking, maybe the occasional, you know, marijuana cigarette. But it's also a place where kids went, kids like Christy and kids like our guest, Mary Menachino. Mary used to play in those woods, and we asked her. She took our, our friend John Aller back there when he was doing his book to show him the woods and the paths and where Christy was found. We asked Mary about those woods and their significance to, to growing up in the Clintonville area. Because I think it's fundamental to the story. Uh, the reason, the primary reason that we would uh, forage through uh, the woods is because it was a shortcut to Graceland Shopping Center. And there, you know, we had the bowling and uh, all kinds of fun things to do there. But it was also like a sanctuary for us. Um, You see, if you didn't live in this area, you wouldn't even notice this secluded, well-traveled path that we had forged ourselves, okay? It was so overgrown with trees and bushes that we created a road, and then we also put rocks. There's a little stream, and we placed rocks in the stream because if you didn't know where the rocks were, you were going to go into the water. More importantly, once you cross these rocks to get up to the guardrail, where everything happened with Christy. There was a very steep hill incline. And if you did not know exactly where it was, how to hang on to that branch to pull yourself up, you were falling straight back. Yeah, and you took our our you know our other guest, John Aller, back there, and he did fall down, didn't he? He did. You were really hidden from the world. You felt so safe. And that was the shock yeah. of all the places... Kind of like innocence lost. Right. Of all the places for something like this horrific to happen, that would be the last place I would think. Christie's body was found by a man named Henry Newell. Junior is what he went by, or J.R., Uncle J.R., to her nieces. Newell found her with his wife, pregnant wife, uh, their kids. They were said to be on a nature walk back in those woods, a hike is what normal people would call it. Newell was 25 years old, wasn't employed, lived very close, was a neighbor of Christie and and knew Lisa as well, um, although he claimed that he did not. But Newell's the one who finds the body, runs into the Wolko, and alerts the police. We asked John, you know, who was Henry Newell, um, and what role, if any, did he have in this case? Henry Newell uh, was originally from Alabama, um... Uh, he had a criminal record. He um, was unemployed at the time, unless you consider small-time drug dealer to be his <laughs> occupation. Um, he uh, he said that, um, and now we're going to go to his story, 
uh, he said that um, he was out in the woods with his family, consisting of his wife and two stepchildren. They were her children by previous marriages, and they were on a, quote, nature hike, um, at which point they, according to him, came across uh, a man swinging a board at a girl and uh, who then, when they spied him, he dropped the board and ran off and Henry Newell gave chase. They then come back and discover the body of Christy Mullins and run back to Wolko to report the crime. That's his story. Shortly after the murder, Henry Newell and his wife, they describe the assailant. A police sketch is sent out all over Columbus, all over the state of Ohio. And a statewide man, a manhunt is on. They're looking for a long-haired white male. Kind of had a hippie look, dark hair, disheveled. And, you know, Newell describes the assailant, um, you know, being shirtless. Uh, they also, you know, describe him as, as running off, um, you know, dropping what was a what ended up being the murder weapon, a two by four, piece, you know, a piece of wood. We asked John about the assailant that the Newells describe in the sketch. Well, he um, the best the best way to answer that is to look at the police sketch of that resulted from his description. Uh, it was kind of a tall, tallish, five ten, five eleven ish. Um, man, mid-twenties, let's say, or anywhere from 18 to 25, long, black, stringy hair, stubble of beard, your, your, your stereotypical kind of mid-seventies, <laughs> 21-year-old hippie look, you know. Yeah. Um, that's who he described, and there's a police sketch that then went out, uh, which reflects his uh, description. He didn't chase after this assailant, though, correct? He did. He, he, I think for a few steps, but then he stopped and went back to the body. Columbus police are working overtime. This murder shatters this quiet, you know, Clintonville community. And they're looking. The murder is on a Saturday afternoon. Sunday passes. Monday passes. But on Tuesday, there's an arrest. It's pretty unbelievable. They found somebody with little or nothing to go on. Other than the sketch and the description from the Newells. They find someone and they arrest someone named Jack Carmen. We asked John Aller about the man they have in custody, Jack Carmen, and why they thought he was the murderer. Well, it, it, it seems quick, although those were long days at the time because the community was terrorized to think that there was... For three days, they were looking for someone who looked like this sketch. Now, yeah. there was thousands of 
young men who looked like that sketch. So there were a lot of accusations. Oh, I think it's him. I think it was the ice cream truck driver. Yeah, who looked just a, like an him. actual theory, right? Yeah. So anyway, so three days later, um, on Tuesday evening, early evening, Jack Carmen is arrested downtown. Uh, Jack Carmen was a mentally disabled. Back then, they called it retarded. That's not a appropriate term anymore, but that's what he was called in the newspapers mm -hmm. and by the police. Uh, I think he was 24 or 5 at the time. Um, he had been institutionalized earlier in his life. He was a dead ringer for the sketch. Yeah. He was a dead ringer for the police sketch. And he was. He kind of was. Um, and there was a policeman downtown who spotted him. I think it was at a Greyhound bus station where Jack hung out a lot. Um, you know, ate out of the vending machines and the like, and looked just like the sketch. They brought him in for questioning, and it didn't take very long to get a confession out of him. Uh, they and th that night uh, he was um, charged with the murder. Jack was picked up Tuesday, three days after the murder downtown. They took him out to the murder site. They questioned him for hours, six hours, I believe, maybe even longer. But he gives a confession. I'm watching a show right now, if, you, if you're into true crime shows. There's a Netflix show called Confession Tapes. It's all episodes. Each episode is a, is a new case where there's confessions and how those confessions, how they were either you know obtained illegally, um, whether they're under dubious circumstances, whether you believe them or not, and how those confessions are, are obtained and how they're used in trials and murder cases. Check that show out again, Confession Tapes. It's pretty cool. Just started it. Um, but here we have an arrest. We have a confession. And within 11 days, Jack Carmen has pled guilty. His lawyer, a public defender, has pushed the case through and pled him guilty to murder, the murder of Christy Mullins. Obviously, if that was the case, this would be a pretty short podcast and a pretty terrible podcast. But... His lawyer gets him to avoid the death, death penalty. He's given life in prison in exchange for that instant guilty plea. We ask our, our friend uh, John Oller about the confession and about how all that happened just so very fast. Well, uh, as I said, it was, it was pretty easy to get a confession out of him because you could get Jack Carmen to say just about anything, um, to go along with just about anything. Whatever whatever he thought you wanted to hear, he said. So he confessed that night. They brought him to um, Graceland, the police, and supposedly uh, had him point out to them the exact spot on the guardrail where Christie had been last been seen, the rough spot in the uh, woods where the murder took place, he supposedly pointed that out to them, and and showed them the um, the board and how exactly how it broken uh, in half. In, in other words, things that, according to the police, only the killer could have known. Right. Uh, it was all made up. Uh, there was no truth to that. Um, but uh, anyway, and, and anyway, he got a, he got a, a lawyer who, since deceased who had a reputation, he was like a public defender type guy, had a reputation for pleading out his clients early, 
Uh, he had done so in a similar case a few months earlier. Uh, it was called the Roberta Francis case. There's something called Roberta's Law in Ohio now mm-hmm. for what it's known for. Anyway, so uh, Carmen pleads guilty. The Newells identified him in a lineup at the police headquarters that same night, Tuesday night. Um, and, uh, you know, the police considered it an open and shut case. One thing John writes about in his book was after, uh, during this kind of confession time on that Tuesday, they took, uh, they took Jack Carmen out to the woods for him to show them the, the murder spot. And it's rumored or said that this, at the same time the Newells were there for a story or doing something at the murder site as well, might have even seen the investigators who had interviewed them, the detectives, Walking around with this long-haired guy, Jack Carmen. Because later that night, also, they would ID Jack Carmen in a police lineup. They have a confession. They have the Newell's sketch, and they have the Newell's pointing out Jack Carmen as the murderer. But the question is, they have the wrong guy. You know, there's a number of reasons that it couldn't be Jack Carmen. You know, he's kind of like almost this, you know, if you watch To Make Making a Murderer, another, you know, obviously one of the great true crime Netflix shows of the last few years, he reminds me kind of Brandon Dassey, the nephew, the the simpleton, the slow, uh, the slow kid who ends up, you know, also getting charged and, and, and put in jail on this murder with his uncle. Um, but Jack Carmen reminds me a lot of Brandon Dassey. Brandon answers a lot of questions. I don't know. Um, tells people what they want to hear. A confession from Brandon Dassey was worthless, we learned, from watching the show Making a Murder. We asked our guest, John Oller, what was it about Jack Carmen? Why was he the wrong guy? Of well, several things. He was a very meek, passive guy. Not that meek, passive people haven't committed murders in the past, but that was a mark against uh, the accusation. He preferred men to women, although he had been known to visit female prostitutes. So that was another strike against, although, again, it's not not dispositive. He tended to keep his clothes on at all times, didn't like bearing his chest, didn't like wearing shorts, always wore long pants, but he was described by the Newells in their description as someone who was had no shirt and had cutoffs on. The murderer was shirtless, yes, according to Yes, yes. Um, he would, con- as I said, he would confess to anything, you know. Uh, he would take the rap if, for someone if he thought that would help them. And, um, but I would think that, I think the main reason, that, at least as it developed, um, is 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 just the timeline. He had an alibi. The people down at the Volunteers of America where he worked all said to a person that he was still there at, I forget the exact time, 1.30, 1.25 yeah. or something like that. And the murder supposedly taking place at uh, 2.10 or something. It was, it ended up that it was pretty much physically impossible for him to have gotten from the VOA, which was on West Broad, by bus, which is, he didn't drive, so he would have had to walk all the way to High Street, jump on a 
bus, take that uptown to Graceland, and he just couldn't have gotten there in time to commit the murder at the time that it was committed. I guess John Oller was attending The Ohio State University. In 1975, when this murder happens, he went there during the days of Archie Griffin, the second year, 1975. That fall, he would win his second straight Heisman Trophy, the only person to ever do that. Those great teams of Woody Hayes in the mid-'70s. But John was at Ohio State, and he's working at the Lantern, still the school paper. The press and the police and, and, and the mainstream press, I should say, Columbus, they considered this an open-and-shut case a murder that had shocked the community. The police found somebody, and within two weeks, they had pled guilty or sentenced to life in jail. Two authors um, that John worked with at the Lantern decided to dig a little bit deeper, kind of like a little Woodward and Bernstein team here at the Lantern, and they'd heard some things about the murder and how the murder might not have happened like people said it did. Norman Mullins, the father, the grieving father of Christie, he was doing an investigation of his own and didn't believe that the police had had the right guy, or at least didn't have the story right. And the two authors, Jim Yavorsik and Rick Kelly, from the, from the Lantern, the Ohio State school paper, start digging in, interviewing witnesses, talking to the Mullins, talking to the neighbors, the friends. They go to the Newell's house. They, they meet with them. They talk to the people who knew Jack Carmen over at the Volunteers of America and other places around Columbus. And they really do the investigation that the police had not really had to do because an officer identified Jack Carmen as looking like the sketch, worked him over, and got a confession. We asked John about the work of Yavorsik and Kelly, his colleagues at the Lantern, and how they kind of reopened this investigation and how they had the daring to ask in their famous headline, who did kill Christy Mullins? Well, as I said, the police considered the case closed The two major uh, professional dailies in Columbus, the Dispatch and the CJ, pretty much just reported what the police said. They didn't question anything. Um, But the the Lantern, in particular a couple of reporters, um, uh, decided to do an in-depth investigation really springing from these community doubts. There was something called the Justice for Jack Committee that was formed by in Clintonville. And Christie's father also very much doubted the um, the police account. So they interviewed those people, uh, Atlanta reporters, Jim Yavorsik and Rick Kelly, and um, also developed this timeline that said Jack could not have gotten from where he was to the murder site. Yeah, they actually tried to map it out themselves, Yeah, right? Yeah, they actually rode the bus, etc. And um, anyway, so they wrote a big story. A uh, big splash in the lantern, questioning, you know, Carmen's guilt, and pointing out, in particular, that the father was doing his own investigation because he wasn't satisfied with the with the police work. Uh, then that story gets expanded a couple months later into a very famous Columbus Monthly article, probably the most famous um, cover story yeah. in Columbus Monthly's history. He had a picture of Christy Mullins and a big headline, Who Did Kill Christy?
part of this investigation by Yvorsik and Kelly and the Lantern and the Columbus Monthly, and even Christie's dad, Norman Mullins, the story that everyone's told, the story about Lisa Sprague, the friend who was supposedly there, her cheerleading story comes to light. This idea that they were the girls were going to a cheerleading competition being held at in the parking lot or behind the store. Uh, they'd gotten a call from a DJ. There, there's a lot of weird stuff of the reason why they were at the mall or behind or back in the woods that day. Lisa's story doesn't make a lot of sense for a number of reasons. We ask Mary, who knew both of these girls, who knew Lisa and knew Christy, what was it about the cheerleading story that didn't make sense? And if Lisa's cheerleading story isn't true, what else in this case isn't true? From the very, very beginning of this, there were certain things we knew. One, Lisa was lying. Yeah. Okay. Lisa wasn't telling the truth. And we would say, what a bizarre story. The only one left to know the story is her. Why would you make up, go to that extreme to make up that story? That was our first, it just didn't make any sense. Whetstone High in the 1970s. My dad graduated there from, in, I think, 1969. But it was a pretty wild place. Whetstone High called by, you know, some people called it Get Stoned High. Um, you know, it, it was something was going on there. It was a real party, party mecca. Uh, a good high school, definitely. We talked to Mary and anyone you talked to in the 70s who went there. It was a very good school, but it also had a drug culture associated with it. We asked John about Whetstone, you know, and its reputation, and what role, you know, it could have played in this murderous Christy would have been a sophomore at Whetstone High, home of the Braves. She had become kind of rebellious. She was off running around with... It was them. the 70s, man. Yeah, she was with the wrong crowd. <laughs> yeah. She was smoking dope. Whetstone was a pretty wild place. You know, Whetstone my, my... was a pretty wild place. And so was the, the middle school, Dominion. It yeah. was sort of like the feeder. For That's where they developed their habits. Yeah. And then... And, um, so... Mary went to, to Whetstone as well. She was a year behind Christy. We asked her about, about Whetstone in the 1970s. Um, and a lot of high schools in the 1970s. Watch a movie like Dazed and Confused. Set in that was set in the summer of 1976. Well, one year earlier. Have you ever watched that 70s show? I have. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's indicative to <laughs> the era. I mean, the clothes, the, clothes, yeah. the basement dwelling. Um, <laughs> you know, just the whole... Again, just outlook on, on life in general is very, very similar to uh, Whetstone, that era at that time. Um, the thing is, is I was very, very proud to go to Whetstone. Yeah. I was aware of the opportunities that were available if you so chose to, you know, get involved. It was just party central. These articles, an article in the, a four-part you know, four series in the Cleveland Plain Dealer about the murder of Christy Mullins, they cause an uproar. There's a lot of questions, and the police aren't answering. Because in their mind, this case is open and shut. And a few articles and 
and all this stuff, all this stuff will go away. We got our guy. But the Columbus police don't do the full investigation. Yavorsik and Kelly, the, the, the writers here in Columbus from the Lantern, John Oller's colleagues, they actually make the trip from the west side where Jack Carmen's working and seen at the Volunteers of America. They actually make that trip, Johnny, and they make it from, from West Broad up to Graceland on North High. The timeline doesn't match up. They talk to the people at the VOA. They get an actual timeline for the crime. When was the body discovered? Where was Christy? Where was Jack? A movement starts, a movement called Justice for Jack among Clintonville residents and people who knew you know, Norman Mullins and other people who demand that this case be reopened and looked at. They demand justice for Jack Carmen, a person they didn't know because they thought he was being wronged. New attorneys are hired, and they attempt to withdraw his guilty plea. This is after the article comes out, but not much after. And new lawyers are brought in to defend Jack Carmen and try and withdraw his guilty plea. We asked John about you know the kind of the reemergence of the case and whether Jack Carmen really can get justice. Motion made by the new lawyer to um, withdraw his guilty plea. It's very hard to get a guilty plea withdrawn. I've tried to I've tried to do it before myself. Um, and um, uh, really, I mean, it was credit belongs to both the lawyer who who did it, a guy named Richard Addison, who was sort of a dean of the Columbus Bar, uh, but also the Columbus Monthly Story had achieved such prominence in Columbus at that time that there were so many doubts about the police version that I think just about any trial judge would have uh, allowed the guilty plea to be withdrawn at that point. Now, he still had to go through a trial, um, and it would still come out at trial that he had confessed and had pled guilty. So that's that's usually an uphill battle for anyone, but at least he had a shot now. Yeah. Forty years ago, this month, December... 1977, Jack Carmen again will go to trial for the murder of Christy Mullins. Two new attorneys are hired, trial attorneys. You know, the trial is the story of the year in Central Ohio. Norman Mullins, outspoken, is convinced that they got the wrong guy. We have all these people, you know, and all this actual audio will play. You'll hear from Jack Carmen. You'll hear from the attorneys. You'll hear from the prosecutor after this trial. John was able to get us some incredible audio taken right in the courthouse, right after the decision is made. But we talk about the strategy of the attorneys. You know, they're working against this confession, but what is the strategy that that Jack Carmen's attorneys are going to implore to, to try and get him off? Anyway, their defense strategy, as Dave Rebel described it, was... Uh, three parts. Uh, he called it alibi, dumb eye, and so die. Alibi meaning Jack had the alibi that he was downtown and couldn't have gotten there in time. Uh, uh, dumb eye is that he was mentally disabled and lacked the mental capacity to give a reliable confession. Yep. And so die was acronym for some other dude did it. Uh, <laughs> S-O-D-D-I. Yes. And uh, they, the defense lawyers sort of pointed not too subtly to Henry Newell as the dude who they thought 
probably did it. Yeah, and, and Henry Newell is in jail at this point, right? Henry Newell was in jail at that point for on an arson charge. Unrelated. Yes. Henry Newell's possible role in the murder comes up at trial. Lisa, again, the friend who was supposedly with Christy that day, she testifies to the same story about the DJ calling and the cheerleading competition or tryouts and going to Woolco and going inside to check the time and coming out and seeing Christy's gone. And we asked Mary, she's around, she's in Whetstone High School and this trial's going on. And what her thoughts and other students' thoughts probably were, you know, during this trial. Christy, I believe, was bored. It was summer. Damn hot, I, I think. So stinking hot. <laughs> so she, um, so I believe that Lisa came along. Hey, do you want to go with me? I think she, I don't know what story she told her. We'll never know. Uh, it was some kind of story. It was pretty good because... Do you remember hearing that uh, Lisa's sister saw them on the way there and Lisa told her sister to go back? Now, I don't know. I just, Chrissy wasn't a fool. Lisa wasn't a fool. I don't know what they were doing, but the fact that this kind of story was made up is evident to me. It was something not good. As you know, that Newell, Newell was um, Lisa's neighbor. But what's interesting is everyone I've talked to that was in Christie's close circle, nobody knew Newell. Yeah. And I have, I didn't know him. My brothers didn't know him. I asked everybody, whatever he was, I, this is the part that's confusing to me too. Nobody really knew him and they would have. They knew, it was a small area. Everybody knew everyone. Uh, so I've never gotten that piece it's a six-day trial. Jack's lawyers call a surprise witness the stepson of Henry Newell. He was there that day. He was on the, the quote-unquote nature walk. I think he was 10 years old at the time. He's now 12 when he gives his testimony. His name's Bobby Salt. And Bobby's testimony from the surprise witness is earth-shattering. It casts a lot of doubt, and it points a lot of fingers, not at Jack Carmen, but at Henry Newell. Yes, Bobby Saltz was Newell's stepson, uh, uh, the son of Pam Newell, who was uh, Newell's wife at the time. Um, anyway, to be, the context is Newell had told the police that uh, he was only briefly out of his house on Kanawa Drive around midday. Uh, for a few minutes that on the murder day to chase some kids who had been throwing firecrackers yeah, or something right, like that. that. And that his first time in the woods that day was when he discovered the body around 2.10, 2.15 p.m. Bobby Saltz um, sort of blew a hole in that testimony. He was called as a surprise witness. He said a number of things. He said that his uh, stepfather had gone out... Uh, for more than just a few minutes at midday. He'd actually been out for a half hour, 45 minutes, uh, that he came back uh, and was shirtless and had scratches on his body when he came back, and that then the um, his stepfather talked in secretly in the bedroom to 
uh, Pam Newell, the, the wife, and they decided they were going to put the kids in a car and go to Wolco uh, and then take a nature walk in the woods. Um, so they, according to Bobby's testimony, they got back there. It was, it was, the, it was the husband and wife, the two Newells, Bobby, who was 10 at the time of the murder, and, um, um, or maybe he was eight, and t- I don't remember whether he was eight or ten at the time of the murder, but uh, two years later he was uh, testifying. I think uh, he was ten and then twelve when he Yeah, testified. I think, I think uh, no, yeah, you're right, ten and tw- ten at the time of the murder, and a, and a five-year-old uh, sister, Mary. Um, anyway, so they're back in the woods, tramping through the leaves, and... Um, the parents are out front, the kids are behind, and then he hears Newell say, it's not here. Now, what was the it? Mm-hmm. Bobby says, well, it's either it's either the sandal. Junior thought he had lost a sandal. And so they found the sandal there. So it's not here could have meant, you know, he was looking for the sandal and they, it wasn't there and then they finally found it. Or it could have been the body. Oh, it's not here, but it's maybe close by. So they eventually come upon the body. Newell and and his wife walk ahead to the body, leave the kids behind. Um, and then Pam Newell comes back and is crying. And then they all run back to Wolco. They had driven to Wolco uh, and parked near the guardrail where Christie supposedly was left. Now they run back to Wolco and call the police, and that's what sets off the whole commotion and uh, etc. You know, also in his testimony, you know, Henry Newell always claimed that he didn't know the murdered Christy Mullins at all, but Bobby kind of speaks to that as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he said that Newell knew Christy, that she had babysat for them, and that she had uh, ridden a riding mower with him out in the woods. Now, after the trial, the police, when they were, we'll get to this, they were doing a, quote, reinvestigation. They tried to discredit that testimony by Bobby by saying he had confused Christie with another neighbor girl. And that, that, may, that may be. Yeah. Um, although it's clear they, they were trying to discredit him, trying to trick him at the time. So I think they showed him a photograph and said, is this Christie Mullins? And he said, yes. And they said, ah, see here, you were, you were all confused. But there is other evidence uh, maybe uh, maybe better evidence that she uh, knew him or was at least familiar with him. The lawyers make their closing arguments, and the jury is out. They're given their instructions, and they go back sequestered to make their decision. But they're only out for two and a half hours. And the verdict comes in, and it's red. Jack Carmen. On count one, murder in the first degree is found not guilty. Cheers in the courtroom. Everyone so excited for Jack. Even the Mullins seemed somewhat relieved. They didn't think it was Jack Carmen either. You know, we asked John, you know, about the verdict in December of 1977 that acquits Jack Carmen of the murder of Christy Mullins. Yeah, it was, I think it was like five or six day trial. The jury was out for a couple hours or so, I think. Anyway, they came back not guilty. It was pretty overwhelming. They interviewed them afterwards, and I think 
it was 10 to 2 not guilty on the first vote, and the two eventually came around. Um, prosecutors did not accept the verdict. They considered the case closed. Their, their view is the jury got it wrong. Yeah, and, uh, we, and we play some of that audio on the yeah, episode. Yeah, we had, we had the right guy. We still think we got the right guy. Uh, we consider the case closed. There was a public uproar over that. And a few days later, the police chief said, okay, we'll, we'll reopen the case or we'll conduct a new investigation, which they did for a while, for a few months. They had a, another detective they brought in, although the, the, the re, quote, reinvestigation was still headed by one of the original uh, guys on the case who had stoutly insisted that Carmen was guilty. So what really happened in this reinvestigation, to use a, the Sam Shepard analogy, they were looking for the proverbial bushy-haired man. Yeah. They were looking for someone who looked like the police sketch. Well, the police sketch was a fiction. Yeah. Uh, Newell did not see Carmen swinging aboard that day. He may have seen him that day. In fact, I think he probably did. But... So they were looking in the wrong place. Um, they they weren't looking at the guy who was right in front of them, the, right. obvi- the obvious suspect, the person who found, found them, uh, found the body, which was Henry Newell. play some audio for you we told you john ollard gotten us a bunch of audio from all the major players right after the the not guilty verdict is read and first you're going to hear from jack carmen the alleged killer developmentally disabled uh just so 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 gullible but let's hear jack and what he had to say how he almost thanks the police and the prosecutors even though he had been in jail for almost two and a half years. Jack, how do you feel about the two and a half years you had? Oh, man, I, I didn't feel too good after two and a half years in jail. Did you ever think you'd go free? No, I never did. I've been hoping and praying to God that I would. Do you have any plans? Has anyone contacted you about anything you could do if you were to be found not guilty? Well, if I was found not guilty, uh, I don't know what I would do right now. But I sure in the hell glad that I'm free again. That's all I got to say. Jack, how were you treated? I wasn't treated too good. I was treated all right. I mean, I made a lot of good friends, and uh, you know, I I was a runner for for a long time and ate all I want. I ate so darn much now. But lucky my clothes still fit me. Jack, what were you thinking when the jury came out? Well, I was just, uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, when, I, when, I, you know, when I got found not guilty, that, well, that really made me happy. Is, Jack, is there any bitterness toward the police or the prosecution? No, there's nothing. You know, these guards here did their job, and uh, I appreciate what they did for me. And, you know, I really can thank them for it. I mean, you can almost hear why I say he sounds like, you know, Brandon Dassey, the, the you know the the dumb kid from from making a murder, you know, thanking the police and saying you know oh they treated me good, you know I appreciate everything they did for me. He says the attorneys Tom Tyak, 
a name that's still very popular in, in Columbus legal circles. Uh, I know a judge, Dave Tyak, is an excellent judge down at the Franklin County Municipal Court. Lori Tyak is the recently reelected clerk of courts. But Tom Tyak is one of the two attorneys. We hear from Tom. He does such a great job in this trial. Uh, he talks about the trial and, and the future of the case. Where is this investigation going for the murder of Christy Mullins? The thing we knew was that they had a lot of material to go over. It had been a six-day trial. I assume, without knowing, that they would want to review the, at least the transcript and perhaps the tapes as far as the t uh, confession was concerned, because the confession was the case for the state of Ohio in reality. Yeah, they had the time bomb witnesses. Yeah. And then there were all the exhibits as well. So, uh, yeah, we had kind of uh, lockstepped, we thought maybe, from our perspective, two, two and a half hours would be, a, you know, indicate a favorable result. Ironically, I'm told by Mr. O'Grady that Ron O'Brien called it to the he, whether it ingest or not, he said 9.43, and that's just about the time the jury came in. So Mr. O'Brien apparently knew what was going to happen before we did. Ms. Wittayak, what, if anything, can you say about what should uh, proceed from this point regarding uh, finding out who did kill that 14-year-old? Uh, well, that's still the prosecutor's responsibility to, uh, and the police department, if they... Uh, they've heard what was presented in this courtroom. If they'd like to go forward, either with further investigation or presentation of the information to grand jury, fine. That's their decision to make. It's not ours. The last person we hear from is the prosecutor, O'Grady. Uh, him and the current uh, prosecutor here, Ron O'Brien, was sitting second chair in this trial. But what about those prosecutors? You know, they went forward on this bogus confession, and they lost. Are they still looking at any other suspects? Are they looking at Henry Newell? We listened to their interview outside the courtroom following the verdict. In your uh, final arguments, you said, I don't know the exact quote, but uh, if we took Henry Newell to court, it wouldn't last two minutes. Uh, uh, maybe an unfair question to ask you. What uh, the prosecutor's office may have in mind for Henry Newell at this point, if anything. But what is Newell's status at this point? A lot of things were said about him that were incriminating. What is his status right now as far as the prosecutor's office is concerned, and what's his likely future? This is not an unfair question. Mr. Newell's likely future is that he will finish his sentence for the arson conviction for which this office tried and convicted him. We gave him no deals, we gave him no breaks. When he later got in trouble, we tried him. As far as this case, the, the Carmen murder case is concerned, as far as Mr. Newell, I feel there was absolutely no evidence that was introduced in this case that would implicate Mr. Newell. He did cooperate with this office, and he cooperated with the police department in giving them the information. I told this jury that, in my opinion, when they rendered their verdict, the case of the death of Christy Mullins was closed. It's still closed, in my opinion. There is no evidence against Mr. Newell. There were frail, minor items that were commented about by some witnesses, most of which was only in rebuttal and only admitted for the purposes of impeachment. It had nothing to do to really implicate Mr. Newell. And if anyone were to try 
in the posture of the case at the present time to try to bring Henry Newell to trial for this matter, as I said in the final argument, any defense attorney would put on the stand Detective Price and the tape recording and say, well, for crying out loud, Jack Carmen confessed to this trial. How can you convict Henry Newell or anyone else? Just like the prosecutor said, a lot of fingers were pointed at Henry Newell, the man who discovered Christie's body in the woods, the man who called police. But we asked John about this idea that the prosecutor threw out, that they wouldn't be able to, to try Henry Newell after the trial. So we asked John about that theory. Why couldn't they try him if they thought he was the right guy? I think it was basically a... Um They didn't want. They had egg on their face. They had put the wrong guy in prison. He spent know, a couple of years yeah, in prison, a year two, and a half in prison. Yeah, two years. Um, and they had missed the kind of the obvious suspect that, that a lot of people in the neighborhood were telling him was the real killer. Um, they said, "Well, if we charged Newell and put him on trial, there would be, by definition, reasonable doubt because all the defense." attorney would have to do is say well look you know this other guy confessed yeah I, I think that was that was an excuse um i think they just did not want to be embarrassed by charging you know henry newell and and in fact the reinvestigation if you if you read between the lines in, in the file they were um doing their best to exonerate newell and to continue to discredit Norman Mullins, the father, and 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 the neighborhood people who insisted that it was Newell or somebody else other than Carmen. Our guest Mary Mancino is still at Whetstone High School when the verdict comes out in December 1977, like we said, 40 years ago to the month. And there's calls for a reinvestigation from the media, from the Justice for Jack Committee, from people who knew Christie, from people in Clintonville. We asked Mary about her thoughts after the verdict. Um, the other thing was we knew Newell was her murderer. We, we all said it. Oh, the guy that found her is the one that killed her. There was no question. And we never, ever wavered, you know, from that, um, that fact. But there would be no investigation. There would be no future indictments for the murder of Mull Christy Mullins. Not of Henry Newell, not of anyone else. And the case goes cold for nearly 40 years. This is a two-part episode, so we ask you to join us for Murder 2.0, Part 2. We'll jump ahead to modern day. We'll jump ahead to 2014. As our guest John Oller comes back to Columbus to write a book about the murder and in the process, cracks the case wide open.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.